Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. Writing the Coast is your destination for conversations with the winners and finalists of our annual book prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Annabelle Lyon, and I'll let her share a little bit about herself. My name is Annabelle Lyon. I use pronouns she and hers, and I live and work on the uh, traditional ancestral unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that my question about which character from a book an author would be and why has stumped more than a few people. And it's definitely one of the toughest questions I ask folks, but it also gets some of the best answers. And here's Annabelle's answer. It's tough. You know, the very first thing that came to mind, and this is silly, but I thought I would be any character in The Importance of Being Earnest by Oscar Wilde, because that is play that is just endlessly delightful to me. I love everything about it. I love all the characters. I would play any of them. I love Oscar Wilde so much. Gosh, that's a tough one. Because I don't read about happy people. It's not like, (laughs) you know what I mean? It's not like I want to be in a Laurie Moore story or I want to be in a, I don't want to be in a George Chandra story. Absolutely not. Do I want to be a character in like a Michelle Good novel? No, not really. Um, But I want to read that so badly. You know what I mean? Like I want to read about these, these dark things and these complex things. And are they hard to live through? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I'm going to go, I'm going to go with Oscar. I'm going to go with the importance of being earnest. If that had to be my life, I'd, any of them. Annabelle's novel Consent is a finalist for the 2021 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. And Annabelle starts our conversation with a reading from the book. June 2018. The phone rang again. It had been ringing for days. Saskia answered finally. Yes. Saskia? Saskia Gilbert? Saskia waited. It's Sarah Landau. They arranged to meet the next afternoon in a hotel bar downtown. Sarah was there when Saskia arrived, drinking red wine. Saskia ordered tea. Sarah had a tremor. Saskia had a headache. After saying hello, they didn't speak until the waitress had left. They went for supper at a Cambodian place Saskia knew. Spicy soup, plastic booths, the kind of place where you didn't bother to take your jacket off. Student food, hangover food. You look rough, Sarah said softly. I don't sleep well. Neither do I, Sarah said. They went back to Sarah's apartment up in the sky there in Town, near the library. She had some lovely things. The Celadon dish on the console in the front hall where she left her keys and coins. The mid-century teak sofa. The astonishing array of perfumes that she kept like condiments in the door of the fridge. The vials of Zoloft and clonazepam and Siconal on the bedside table next to the phone dock and the hand cream and the wrist brace and the night guard and the brandy. They went back to Saskia's parents' house. They looked at photos, and Saskia showed Sarah Jenny's clothes, which filled her closet. She'd gotten rid of pretty much everything else. They arranged to meet at a hotel bar downtown, a different one. Sarah knew a lot of these places, expensive and anonymous, where if you were wearing nice clothes, you could drink a little too much and no one would remember you. 
They went for Lebanese at Candy and Hastings across the street from the cenotaph where the drug dealers watched and waited. They argued that time. The phone rang again. I'm sorry, Saskia said, and Sarah said, I'm sorry. They went back to Sarah's apartment. They agreed about some things, disagreed about others. At times, each blamed the other's intransigence on the other's age. So old, so young, so green, so gray, so hard, so soft. Actually, they were both hard, angry, and unforgiving. Actually, they were both soft, tender with pain, and childlike with incomprehension. Do you ever wonder about consent? Sarah would ask, and Saskia would repeat the things she'd read about safe words of the psychology of the submissive. But in the car, that text, Sarah would say, and Saskia would shrug. What must Jenny have been thinking in that moment? Do you think Maddie was happy with him? Saskia asked. Sarah looked at the bar, nodded at the bar. They met for the last time at a pub on Granville Street during happy hour. The place was packed and they had trouble hearing each other. Not that there was much left to talk about by that point. Saskia left first. Sarah watched her go. She was brittle. A man bumped her and she turned and swore in his face, startling him out of the apologetic grin he had put on. So brittle. Bit by bit, she would chip off shards sharp enough to cut until there was just a blade of her left in the body's sheath. Sarah left first. Saskia watched her go. She was frail. Her mind would give out, and her liver. That was guilt. It was the difference between them. Guilt would be the death of Sarah, but not of Saskia. There she goes, Saskia thought, in her lovely coat, that cashmere and guilt blend so few can afford. That lovely perfume she trails, lilies and gilt. At the door, Sarah turned and looked back at Saskia, as though she had just remembered something she meant to say, and touched her heart. Saskia almost smiled. They never spoke again. So I'm actually really interested that that's where you, that was the reading you decided to start with, because as I was kind of refreshing my memory on this book, I, I was reading that part where the topic of consent comes up, um, maybe in its most like overt sense in the book, despite the title. I don't know that people ever really talk about consent except for in that one scene. And I was thinking about the title, but also just like how much that word's meaning has has kind of morphed in the last 10 years. Like, I think we know it, thankfully, in a, in a different way. But I think your book kind of looked at that word in ways that maybe we've forgotten and maybe that have lost weight. And I was just curious how you landed on the title, but also if you knew you were writing about consent the whole time or whether it kind of at the end you were like huh there it is yeah no the working title for the book for the longest time was de winter which is the name of a uh, fashion designer a fictional fashion designer and it's a name that was given to a dress that he created in the book and somebody wears the dress at one point and it really by the end of the writing and that was my my sort of working title for it right from the get-go but by the end 
that title really only reflected one of these two pairs of sisters whose kind of braided narrative is the backbone of the story. And so my editor thought that, you know, it really threw too much emphasis on one pair of sisters. And really the story was about both of them. So I had to come up with something else. And I liked consent because I did, you know, to answer your your second question, I did know from the beginning, I think that that was what I was writing about. Um, the sort of first bit of this that I wrote is now, I think, basically chapter two. It was published as a freestanding short story way back in 2004. This thing has been in my head for a long, long time. And the idea of consent, it sort of, I understood it in the context of consent in relation to somebody with a developmental disability. And that can be consent in many contexts, not just sexual consent, although that's a part of it too in this book. And so, you know, I sort of had my eyes open in that sense, but then when I was trying to come up with a title and I was sort of playing around with consent, you know, you roll it around your mouth, like a, like a gummy bear or something and sort of thinking, does this work for this book? I realized that it had sort of subliminally crept in this idea of consent in a number of other um, places as well in a, in terms of an S&M relationship, which was alluded to in the bit that I read, um, but also in terms of marriage, in terms of caregiving, you know, and what you owe to people that you love and family members and, you know, whether love in a way can negate consent, or at least make it a whole lot harder to make that a discrete decision. And I realized that it had taken on, I think, a broader context than I had intended for it at the very start when I first started working on the book. Yeah. And maybe you can, you've talked a little bit that there's these two pairs of sisters, which are, they really drive the story forward. And we see individuals of the two pairs in in the reading you did but how did those four women come to you I think I heard you talk about how two kind of came at first and then the other two came later so I'd be curious to hear like how those emerged and what intrigued you about the characters as you were working on them so the, the De Winter pair, if you will, came first, and that was Sarah and Maddie. That was that uh, short story that I alluded to that I, that I started so long ago. And this this pair, each of these pairs of sisters, there's one in need of care and one who's a caregiver. And so Maddie has a developmental disability and Sarah has to care for her. And they came from two very distinct um, different places. And I remember them very vividly where they both came from. Um, we have a an acquaintance who's a, a family lawyer and have been telling us about a case he knew of of a family that had to get a marriage annulled because the young woman in question was not capable of um, meaningful, you know, legal consent and had gotten married to somebody who was basically after the family money. The family was quite wealthy, and you know, we were sort of reflecting on the sadness of that to to have to take a loved one up before the court and say, you know, they're not capable, they can't. Um, that's a really hard thing to have to do. It's a really hard position to to put a person in, to confront them with, you know, that aspect of themselves. The other thing that I was thinking about, too, and an idea I had been playing with, and I find that I, I do this more and more in a sort of knee-jerk feminist kind of way, was I was thinking about crime and punishment, um, Dostoevsky's 
obviously famous novel. And I was thinking about it from the perspective of the female characters. And that's the thing that I, that I find myself doing. And of course the crime of that, that title is the murder by this young student, Raskolnikov of an old lady. Who's a, a money lender. She's fairly predatory. She's described as being like physically disgusting and mean and, and suspicious. And, you know, there's nothing good about her. And, so he goes and he decides to murder her, steal the money, spread it around. It's this utilitarian sort of concept of ethics that somehow he's doing a greater good by doing this. But of course it immediately gets messy because when he goes to kill this woman, it turns out that she lives with a sister who is, I think he calls her simple-minded, right? That's the terminology from the time. And so he has to kill her too, as a witness. And I wanted to tell those sisters story and I thought, so obviously, you know, in, in retelling it, you can't kill them right away because you need, you need them there as characters or at least one of them. Um, so I had to keep them alive. And what I ended up doing with um, the Raskolnikov character, instead of murdering them, because, you know, the, the thing that we get from crime and punishment is that he obsessively goes back to the scene of the crime over and over and over because he can't get over the guilt and the shame and all of that with what he's done. So I have him stalk them. He goes back again and again and again, trying to get something from them. And so that was the way that I recast it. And then the second pair of sisters. So I had this story. It was quite short. It was quite tight. It was maybe like 80, 100 pages. And it wasn't enough for a full-blown novel. And I kept trying to add to it. I kept trying to pad it out. And it just didn't feel right. It felt sort of complete in and of itself. So then I thought, okay, what would happen if I added another set of sisters in a parallel but also different situation? So then I came up with Saskia and Jenny. Saskia is the one who gives care. Jenny is the one who is in need of care. Um, she's impulsive. She has no self-control. She does what she wants when she wants. She is, I guess you would say, unstable in many ways. And Saskia has always had to be her the check on her, her anchor, the one who rescues her from her own bad decisions. And I structured that much more along the lines of a mystery. For some reason, I thought, oh, I'm going to make a thriller with these two. And then I had to crash the two stories into each other, like a pair of billiard balls. And I think that was the hardest part of the process, because the moment when I did that, I kind of surprised myself. I knew I had to do it, but I didn't know how. And then when it came up in the writing, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can sustain that. Um, yeah. And then it kind of went from there. So this, this, the moment that I just read to you is this sort of, just as we're moving into the last act of the novel and these two storylines have come together one last time to kind of touch each other. And then, as I said, they never, they never speak again. Yeah. It also seemed like you were playing a lot with, um, with kind of those opposites and with contrast in the book and even in the sisters themselves, we get kind of, you know, uh, Jenny's even her in her parents' eyes is the successful one. And Saskia is kind of the disappointment and, and with um, Sarah and Maddie, there's that contrast as well. And even how other people perceive them, like David seeing um, Sarah and Maddie's mom as being the nurturer and Sarah just, she nurtures maybe in her own way, but it's a bit more brutal. Mm -hmm. Some people see it as cruel. But I mean, maybe it's the feminist in me, but I saw that kind of uh, as this commentary on how women are perceived. There's women are perceived as good and bad, and there's often no gray area. And uh, I was wondering if that was intentional on your part. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And that caregiver role is... 
you know, it's iconic. It's ancient. It's an ancient stereotype. It's an ancient association with a binary that I think we're all starting to recognize is not a real binary anymore. That sort of gender binary is is not actually the thing that we sort of have tended to talk about it, uh, that we've tended to sort of say that it was. Um, And so those characteristics, as you point out, that we ascribe to men, to women, it's, it's, it takes on less and less meaning, and yet it is still hard to talk about. It's hard to say, um, I'm a woman and I suck at caregiving. It's hard to say, I'm not enjoying this. It's hard to say, you know, um, or maybe I'm, 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 I can do this caregiving thing, but it's not going to make me into a nice person to be around. It's not going to make me into someone attractive. And I think that that's, that's another binary. Of course, it's a huge one is attractive, unattractive. And that's definitely at play, I think, with both pairs of sisters um, as well. Yeah. Not sure if I've totally answered your question there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those, those binaries, they're so interesting and they're so in need of being completely blown up and exploded. Like they're just, they're useless. And yet we're stuck in them still. It's, it's an archaic thing. And I feel like we just, we have to kind of focus on and, and blow them up as we find them. And it makes for interesting, interesting conversations, I think. Yeah. Well, and there was also this other kind of binary that comes up, it comes up naturally, but then it's also kind of addressed um, between Jenny and Saskia when Jenny's kind of uh, redeveloping her communication skills after the accident and her first word is love and her second word is pain. And those, of course, maybe they're not so much binaries as just kind of sides of the same coin sort of thing, but we really see the complexity of what it does mean to love in human relationships of so many kinds in this book and how from the outside we can have an idea of what love is but it's often very different on the inside and that was that was something I was often struck with in the book was judgment how from the outside someone sees something as one thing but we really have no idea as to what it looks like on the inside absolutely absolutely and you know, I like that you said two sides of a coin, because that's very much I, I, I think of it in those very concrete terms as well, you know, love and pain, um, humor, and, and whatever the opposite of humor is, you know, that something is so horrible that you have to laugh, or something is so funny that you cry, you know, that, again, those things, those, those, the membranes between those things, I think, dissolve sometimes, and we're just in this liminal place where um, it's both and it's not either or. Yeah, and and I, I like what you said as well about the inside versus the outside, like looking at something from the outside and thinking that you understand and then kind of realizing, no, I didn't understand that at all. You know, I was seeing one thing, but what was really happening was something else. And I, again, I think that's the thing that we need to remind ourselves of, you know, going through our day to day that, you know, that what we see and what we perceive, like the knee jerk reaction to that is not always the right one. Yeah. I found Robert to be an interesting character because at times I had sympathy for him, but at other times I wasn't quite sure how I felt about him. Me too. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm I'm just curious about how he came up as a character for you um, because he does play an interesting role where at times he feels like villain, but at other times he seems just very misunderstood by the yeah. people who interact with him. 
And that complexity was very important to me. So, I mean, I first started conceiving of him when I wanted to tell the story of the young woman who married someone who was after the family money, but I didn't just want him to be a con artist or a bad guy because that's boring, right? Fiction doesn't, doesn't work with those black and whites. I thought he's got to be more complex than that. So what would that look like? So I started, you know, you, you shade and you shade and you shade the character. But then I also needed to have you know, aspects to him that were very much less pleasant in the way in which there are aspects to Sarah, which are very unpleasant. There are by the end aspects of Saskia that are really dark. And I needed to do that with him as well. I wanted to give him a history of addiction that would sort of, again, parallel, but not replicate Sarah's issues with alcohol. I wanted it to be unclear throughout who's predator and who's prey. And I really wanted those roles. Not that you think it's one thing and then it's the other, but again, it's both and. It's both and all the way through. I was really struck. My husband told me after he read the book, he said he felt really sorry for Robert. And I thought, oh, okay, that's that's not all bad, you know, because I I do think that he's had, he had a, a very tough life and, you know, has a lot of darkness, but isn't just defined by that. Yeah. There was one that I, as I was doing my reread last night, I was, there was another part that I was struck by that kind of connected to so many things I was noticing. But when you were touching on the BDSM parts of it, and then there was, you included the word role play. And I thought that was so interesting because of what was happening to, especially Sarah and Saskia, because they were now taking on these new roles and figuring out how to play them. And for better or worse, they were being redefined as people. And and I thought that was, especially because I think culturally we have such such trouble with BDSM and role play relationships and mm-hmm. whether that is consensual or not mm-hmm. and uh, how that fits into loving relationships and all those things. And I just, I I thought it just really spoke to a lot of what was going on in terms of these characters and I was yeah I was curious about including that in there because it's not heavily in there but it's enough to kind of I think all of our uh, prudish senses whatever for me at least even though I I hope to be open-minded whenever I read BDSM you still kind of bristle for some reason yeah I mean again it was that that idea of dissolving a boundary between extremes um, and that was really that was really interesting to me. And at the same time, it wasn't about it as you know the the, the, the sexual side of it was almost beside the point. Um, I didn't want it to be there to be titillating, to be just some little sort of ooh, look at that, you know. It was more no. What does this actually mean? How is this actually reflecting something about human relationships? Um, and I think that it's you know it was important to me that Saskia you know, when she's trying to figure out, she finds out after the fact that her sister had this whole other life that she didn't know about. And so she spends a little bit of time trying to understand and has to come to terms with the fact that she just can't. This is not, this is not a world that she can understand. And she actually finds it kind of boring and, you know, feels as, and it's this idea of, of, I think, loneliness in relationships too, that you can be so close to someone. She's, this is her twin and yet so cut off from her and so unable to enter whatever headspace she was in. And I thought that this was just a nice, you know, 
a, a nice strong sort of taste in something that it's like having a taste for blue cheese that somebody else might just say, I just do not understand what you see in that. And I wanted something like that, that could sort of drive a wedge between these sisters for all that they were so close that they could also be so far apart. Yeah. I wanted to ask about, um, about I can't believe sisters. I just related BDSM to a taste for blue cheese. I'm sure I can, I'm not sure who I've offended more the, the BDSM people or the cheese lovers, but I or apologize. The, or, or In both directions, a, I apologize. Or maybe you found a way to bring them all together. Wouldn't that be something? Yes. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's a Reddit group out there somewhere for the, for the, you know, Gorgonzola tops or whatever. I wanted to ask about sister relationships because after doing this podcast and being an avid reader myself, it seems like there's something about the relationships with sisters. It came up when I was talking with Alex Olin last year and Rhea Tregobov, and there's something about sisters that, especially just like pairs of sisters, that seems like such um, ripe area to explore for stories. And I, I wondered what you thought it was that made sister relationships so interesting um, as a place to tell stories and um, for characters to be sisters. I mean, I think even more important to me than this idea of sisters is this idea of siblings and the gender is almost an accident. Um, not entirely, but you know, somewhat, uh, what I was interested in was how that that sort of relationship puts you in a position where your ability to exercise agency and your ability to say no are very, very much compromised. Um, so, you know, if, if you know that that person needs help or if you know that person needs care or if you know that there's something that's going to be asked of you, it, it makes it so much harder to say, no, I can't do that for you. And that was really, you know, it was that aspect of sibling relationships that, that was most interesting to me. And, you know, I guess thinking of the time when I began this book, I think there was a sense of consent. In, you know, I was considering it in very feminist terms. And I think over the last, what is it, like 15, 16 years, there's been so much of a broadening of understanding of like what consent can be, what gender can be. And I'm not sure that I would write the book quite the same way again, if I was, if I was starting again today, but it definitely, that, that idea of sibling relationships was, was the thing that was key for me. You, you love someone before you know what love is and you, you hate them and you compete with them before you know what those things are. You know, that's what a sibling relationship is to me. Yeah. What would you change about the book if you were, coming at it again now? I uh, would be forced to think about the pandemic, I think. I mean, that's that's almost the least of it, but that was definitely something that, that I was forced to think about because I had completed the book prior to the pandemic starting, but before, you know, the, the book was published after the pandemic. So I did have to change some of the timelines and things in there so that people wouldn't be asking, why aren't they wearing masks? So I would have to reckon with that, I think. I think I would question why the characters are all male or female and why there's nothing in between, which I'm, again, trying to sort of consciously do more and more and sort of look at assumptions around gender and and push back on those and sort of see if what 
you know, I, I felt confident of in 2004, if I would still feel confident of that now. I don't want to give you, I can't give you a really detailed answer because I don't want to give you a quick glib answer. But I think I would, I think that's the first thing that I would think about is I would really push back on my own uh, preconceptions around gender and, and just question those further if I was starting the book again today. Yeah. I was well, something that even came up as I, I was rereading it. Now I had read the book when it um, first came out and then I was rereading it last night and I couldn't help but think kind of of like all the stuff with Britney Spears and the conservatorship too and, and what Maddie went through losing kind of her legal rights and becoming yeah. um, and having Sarah be her guardian too and just how even I thought differently of that whole relationship just with that going on in, in the news as well. It was interesting. It's it's really interesting. And, you know, of course you can throw gender into that mix as well and say, do we see this happening with young men who, you know, come into a lot of money fast and are very successful and live wild lives? Well, no, I don't think yeah. so. Can you name one? I can't. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you. And, and that is, um, it's such a powerful weapon to wield against someone to say, you know, I can have you declared incompetent. I can, I can sort of take over decision-making for you. That's it's, it's, it's like, those are, those are fundamental human sort of needs for anyone. I don't care your level of, of, you know, capacity. Thanks so much to Annabelle for being on Writing the Coast. And thanks as always to you for listening and subscribing to Writing the Coast. If you would like to learn more about who we are at the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You'll find a lot of information about all of the winners and finalists on our website, as well as details about upcoming events, such as our storied series. And our next one actually features my guest for next week's podcast episode, Bryony Penn. Bryony will be talking about creative collaborations with David McIlwraith, editor of Diary of Duke Sang Wong, who was actually on my last episode of the podcast. Carol Shaben is the moderator for that event. Next week on the podcast, as I just hinted at, you'll hear my conversation with Bryony Penn, whose book, Following the Good River, The Life and Times of Wahade, is a finalist for the 2021 Roderick Haig Brown Regional Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.